outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 337. And today in the show, we have got a fascinating discussion on the merits of the traveling hunter lifestyle and spot and stalk hunting big white tails from the ground. All right, welcome to the Wired Ton Podcast brought to you by Onyx. Today I am joined by Tony Treach for what ends up being, or I guess it ended up being, a really, real cool conversation. I just got done recording this one, and Tony is not a hunting industry guy. He's not uh, working full-time in this line of work. Rather, he actually started and built up a construction company up in my neck of the woods of northern Michigan. Um, At least I'm going to claim them as my neck of the woods since I love that area. (laughs) Um, But he has built his career and really his whole lifestyle in such a way that Tony's able to travel the country every single fall in search of deer and elk and other big game. And he does it for two, three, four months a year. And I'm not just saying he goes out there for a week in September and then a week in October and then a week in November. No, he goes out there nonstop. Like he'll take off in August and he won't come home until November, that kind of thing. And he's living out of a tent or the back of his truck and he's hunting all sorts of critters across the West and the Great Plains and and used to spend a lot of time in the Midwest. And he's he's basically living this dream that a whole lot of us have and he's doing it with a tremendous amount of success. And of particular interest to me, and probably to a lot of you, a big part of that success has come in the form of chasing and killing a whole lot of big, mature bucks. And he's doing it uniquely by spotting, stalking, decoying, and calling them in on the ground. And uh, I'm pretty sure this is right. Tony's done this without having used a tree stand since 2012. So today in the show, I'm grilling Tony on these two main topics. Number one how he's able to pull off this traveling, vagabond, hunting lifestyle for months at a time, what that's like, the good and the bad, you know, how does he balance his travel with family obligations, some DIY camping tips, and a whole bunch of stuff along those lines. And then we get into the nitty-gritty of his aggressive approach to hunting big whitetails on the ground. And I'm telling you what, this one's fascinating. It just got me really, really excited. So uh, I can't wait for you guys to hear it. But before that, you guys ever have that where words are in your mind and then when they get to your mouth, it's like you get stumbled up on your tongue? 
happens to me a whole lot. Just unfortunately, I do it in front of tens of thousands of people who have to hear me sound like an idiot. So <laughs> sorry for that. But what I'm trying to say is that before that, I want to give you an update on the shed hunting, trash collecting thing that Dan and I were brainstorming last week. Again, another example of us sounding like idiots. Um, we've decided on a hashtag for that, and we're going to call it Tines and Trash. So the hashtag sign and then Tines and Trash. I hope you guys will join Dan and I this spring. When you go out shed hunting, just bring along a trash bag and pick up trash throughout your walk. Simple as that. And if you want to post a pic with your trash on Instagram, use that Tines and Trash hashtag and maybe you know give a couple words of encouragement to others out there to do the same. Um, I'll be keeping an eye on the hashtag and just at random pick some folks to send some prizes out to. Nothing big or crazy, but I do want to just give some folks, you know, a little bit of extra incentive to do this and just, uh, you know, give you a pat in the back for doing a good thing. Um, so I'm going to send out some Wired Hunt stickers, uh, maybe some signed copies of That Wild Country, maybe a Wired Hunt Yeti Rambler, stuff like that. So, yeah, hopefully hopefully this is just a fun way to get some that to get, <laughs> see, whole lot of that's happening today. I'm hoping this is a good way to just remind us all to try to keep our wild places clean. And I got to be honest, I'm I'm not always good about it. I get so focused on the task as I do in many cases, I get tunnel vision and I just probably walk right by stuff without even thinking about it. And I realized how bad that I typically probably do because yesterday I went out shed hunting and I brought my trash bag and I was much more focused on looking for trash. And when I started really paying attention to it, man, it was kind of depressing how bad it was. You couldn't walk 50 yards without seeing some more junk out there. And it just, it was just a good reminder that I need to be better at this kind of thing. And maybe we, maybe a lot of us can do a little bit better. I know a lot of people have been doing this a lot in the past. So kudos to everyone out there who's been better than me at picking up trash out there in the woods. Thank you for inspiring me to try to get a little bit better. And thanks to the Wired Hunt fans, several of you who suggested this to me over the previous months, and uh, which led to us trying this out. So, Tines and Trash, that's the hashtag. Hashtag, not the hashtag. <laughs> Having a hell of a day here, guys. That is the hashtag. Post your pics. I'll be keeping an eye out. And uh, that's my final update. And now, enough of all that, enough of my rambling, uh, tum, tongue-tumbling miscues. <laughs> Let's just get to this chat with Tony Treach. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. All right, with me now on the line is Tony Treach. Welcome to the show, Tony. Hey, thanks, Mark. Uh, glad to be on. Thanks for uh, having me with you today. I'm, I'm glad to be able to make this happen. Uh, you're you're up in my neck of the woods, aren't you? Kind of the northern part of Michigan? Yep, uh, Traverse City. Nice. Sweet. I, I'm down in the southern part of the state, but uh, my family deer camp is just about a half hour south of you there. So uh, I love that part of the state. It's a great place. We might have to talk about that later because I grew up uh, about a half mile so- or a half hour south of here too. So it might be oh, pretty close. Nice. Yes. When we get off air, we'll have to talk <laughs> specifics. <laughs> That's great. It's it's definitely that whole area, the northern lower, kind of formed the foundation of my outdoor passions. You know, and it's funny, I keep finding, and maybe I'm biased here, but it just seems like Michigan, especially West and Northwest Michigan, breeds just really, really good sportsmen and women, really passionate hunters and anglers and and also writers. I mean, 
Um, you're up there. My buddy Steve Rinella's from there. Um, you know, you've got Hemingway that spent time up there. Jim Harrison wow. spent time up there. Uh, a whole lot of outdoors people that's, seem to have had that that Michigan influence. Well, that's a pretty uh, prestigious group to have my name in there with. I'm not <laughs> sure if I belong in there, but thanks. Well, hey, you, you're uh, from everything I've seen. You're one hell of a hunter. And uh, you've you've done some different cool projects uh, across the outdoor world too. So I've been kind of distantly aware of you for some time. And then I came across an article in Field and Stream last year, I think, Mm -hmm. in which you were featured. And I got really intrigued and I put you on my list of like people I really need to talk to eventually. And and somehow I got distracted and never ended up following up with you. But uh, I'm glad we're finally doing it because – you do a lot of things uniquely, but there's two things in particular that stand out to me that um, that really intrigue me. You and, and any anytime you're jumping here and correct me if I'm if I'm off base on any of these things I'm seeing about you and reading about you and, and hearing from you, but it seems like you have built a life for yourself that's pretty unique compared to most people. You've kind of built a world and a yearly schedule and a career that has been 100% centered on hunting and allowing yourself to go and hunt and adventure as much as you possibly want. Um, Am I right in that you have kind of very thoughtfully crafted your life to create the time and space and freedom to, to hunt this way? Is is that right? Cool. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's true. Um, I started a business in my early twenties as a carpenter, uh, and realized real fast that if I want to spend time uh, hunting, uh, it was going to have to, you know, that, that was basically that was the only way it was to be my own boss. And, uh, and I, you know, make sure that the people that, that work for me and the people that I work with know that, you know, it's, it's kind of this thing, you know, when the fall rolls around, Tony's going to be gone. And uh, it's, it's definitely evolved over the years from uh, just being gone, maybe a couple weeks at a time, uh, traveling around the Midwest and Illinois and Iowa and Ohio and Kansas to now traveling all across the, the country and the mountains. And the biggest, uh, biggest hurdle for me is, you know, with that is, is managing the people. And, uh, but <clears throat> I've been pretty lucky that I've got good people and it's, uh, it's, it's worked out so far. So you're, you're, from some of the things I've heard, you're sometimes taken off in July or August and then not coming back till what, November or December or, or something so. like that. Is that, is that accurate? Uh, there has been years. Yeah. <clears throat> Last year, I think I left or I guess it was this past year was, wasn't as bad. Uh, well, if you ask my now wife, she'd probably tell you it was bad, but, uh, <laughs> it wasn't as bad as 2018, 2018. I left July 20th, 20th, 28th, something like that. You know, in the, in that range last three weeks of July, somewhere in there, because I had a uh, uh, Nevada tag, an early Nevada tag that I wanted to scout for, and I'd never been in the unit. Uh, I was just going off from uh, some info from another you know, friend. And uh, and then, you know, I just, I basically had hunts lined up all, you know, you know, all across the West, uh, right up until, uh, well, pretty much the end of November. And usually I'll try to get home, you know, sometime in late October before I leave again for the whitetail rut. That's like a whole other separate thing. But that year I didn't get to, and I was gone almost, almost four months in a row there. Wow. This past year was only, I think it was just shy of three months. So 
So a lot of people, I think a lot of people dream of doing something like that, right? This idea of just hunting nonstop, touring the country, checking off all these bucket list hunts. A lot of people like that idea, um, but not a whole lot of people actually do it. Why? Why do you do? Why do you actually do it? Why? Like, what's at the root of this being like a reality of your life? I, I realize like it's really easy to say, "Well, I just love to hunt," but there's got to yeah. be something deeper that has that has led you to like this very extreme. Um, I think it's fair to say like an extreme lifestyle choice. Why? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> probably the biggest reason is no one's told me no. Uh, I just <laughs> recently got married, so that you know. And I and I vend her for three seasons before I before I put a ring on her finger, so she knows what she's in for. <laughs> That's good. But but it, we actually joked about putting in the prenuptial agreements, uh, you know, that I would we we you know agreed on three months a year instead of four. <laughs> but I I've just I've uh, I got really good at what I did for a living. Um, I, I, like so in my area, you know, I'm you know basically a carpentry subcontractor and I'm, I have a reputation of being one of the best. So myself, my guys were in high demand and people that wanted us, you know, it came with the, with the expectation that, you know, I'm not going to be there for these months. And they know that, um, if I wasn't good at what I did, I I probably wouldn't have been able to to demand that, uh, extra clause in the contract, so to speak. But, because we were really good. We had a great reputation of getting things done the right way and uh, not taking advantage of situations and, you know, or, you know, treating people right. And uh, because of that, um, everything just kind of fell into place. And, and I had great employees too. You know, it's, I've had, you know, for the last 20 years, I've had some fantastic men working for me. And um, if it wasn't for that, you know, if I had never found good employees then you know, you can't do something like that. Um, <clears throat> as far as the, maybe in my nature, like what makes it possible is just, it's probably the same reason the mountains are, are, are so intriguing to me now. Uh, and I spend more time there than I do in the Midwest. It's just because there's, there's, there's a little bit of a mystique to it. Like the next, what's over the next mountain? Well, you know, what's the, the next, you know, it's, it's just, uh, there's, there's something always calling me to, to go a little bit further and try something new. Yeah. I definitely can uh, can relate to that. Do do you think that? And I I gotta believe it's probably some of both. But I'm curious how you think about it. Do you look at this? Is it more so the hunting itself? Is it the fact that you just love the hunt, or is it the adventure side of things and like the whole travel and journey of months at a time living off grid because unless this has changed recently as i understand it you're pretty much camping the whole time i don't think you get hotels and things like that typically um what is it is it the combination is it one or the other that really makes this thing such a thing or or just describe to me the different facets of this Mm. kind of expedition of sorts good questions mark uh (laughs) so that's uh yeah, yeah, that's a good that's a good question. I think that there's part. I don't think that because uh, I do it all different types of hunting. Some of it's backpacks. Some of it's you know I have a like I set up a car camp. Um, and you're right, I don't use the hotel rooms. Uh, I think I stayed in a hotel room one time last year um, <clears throat> or last season. I mean, the uh, and that was just because I got done super late at night and I was covered in elk blood. Uh, but <laughs> The um, good problem. 
Yeah, no, it was. It was a good day. The I, I, I don't think it is necessarily the hunt. Um, I shouldn't say that. It isn't actually the uh, punching of the tag. It's the like the thing I look forward to the most, and this probably would explain it better, is scouting season. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and this also is one of my big secrets that helps me be successful at tagging giant animals every year is get there early, put the time in scouting. I'd much rather have a week of scouting and three days of hunting or four days of hunting than, you know, one or two days to look around and, and then 10 days of hunting. Um, that scouting is key. <clears throat> and that scouting is also my favorite time of the year. Like you give me 10 days, you know, just cruising around looking for, it doesn't matter if it's Kansas, whitetails, you know, in the prairie, or if it's Colorado up in the high country in August above Timberline scouting with a camera and trying to find that buck that I want to, you know, get, you know, be my target. I'm like, okay, this is what we're going to, this is the guy we're going to go after. That's, that's my favorite time. They're bar none. Yeah, man. I can totally relate to that. I love those days preceding the hunt when you're watching and looking and, and enjoying everything around the hunt still. You're basically hunting, but it's there's still that anticipation that uh, yes. that's pretty awesome. So, okay, so let's let's dig in a little further into what this is actually what's the reality of this kind of thing? Because again, I'm thinking I know there's a lot of people out there that sit in their cubicle and dream of living your life. Dream of that lifestyle. Um I'm sure it's not all rainbows and butterflies though. No. Um so what is what are some of the best things of, of of this kind of lifestyle or about this your your two or three or four month voyage? What are the some of the things that stand out as like the best unexpected moments? Like of course we know seeing a big box great and we know yeah. that um you know getting a deer on the ground is gonna be a great thing. But what are a couple of the little things that just make the inside of you smile? And then on the flip side, what are a couple of the things about this lifestyle or about that two or three or four month trip that are just like the the un the unknown shit that you deal with that most people wouldn't think about what are a few things on both sides of the coin that stand out boy um you know i think that they probably they both probably revolve around the same thing and that's people uh, <laughs> i get to meet and i have met uh some amazing people on the side of the mountain uh that are friends to this day people in every state um and uh you know you see some cool crazy animal stuff if you're in the woods you know whether it be the midwest or the the mountains for 120 days a year you're gonna see some stuff that not many other people are seeing and it, i've seen some crazy things happen i've seen animals doing things that maybe you know most people don't see so that's that's always cool um the worst things that can happen are back to the people thing it's you know, I, I'm away from the people I love for a long time. Um, and every year I make the, you know, my, my wife now and I, we, uh, always made the agreement that, you know, if I tag out early somewhere and I still have, you know, if I have, you know, maybe six days before the next hunt starts, maybe I'll only scout four days and I'll fly, I'll, you know, literally just park the truck at a, at an airport, fly home for a night or two, and then fly back to the, that airport and then jump back in the truck and start over again. But, just never seems to happen it's like i'm always running behind um and i'm literally racing from 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 mountain to, you know from state to state and it's not i mean sometimes you tag out early and it's like wow i got you know i can leisurely now drive from new mexico to to montana which 
if anybody's never done that before, you're basically driving from Canada to Mexico, and it's a long, it's further than it is from Michigan to Nevada. And I did that trip three times last year. Um, It's it's not always just relaxing and fun, and it's uh, it's just go 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 to you know, and it's and it's my fault. I mean, I pile too many tags on a lot of times, and um, I'm not I'm not just hunting premium you know limited entry tags. I'm I'm hunting a lot of I'm hunting any tag I can get. A lot of times, I just try to fill up my schedule, and it sometimes becomes a a little bit of a, a wear. You know, wears on a guy and. You miss the people at home. You miss uh, you know, your dogs. You, may, you I even, you know, I miss my coworkers, uh, the guys that you know, on the job site. The, uh, uh, you know, you, you know, with modern technology, we, we always got everybody right at our fingertips, and we can, you know, chat and text with people and friends. But um, when when I'm out there for that long, <clears throat> even, I mean, when I run into a gas station, you know, I'm. I'm chatty catty, which is not my normal personality. Uh, and yeah, people probably, you know, they don't know me, so they don't think anything of it. But I mean, you just, you can only talk to yourself without going somewhat crazy for so long before you, you need a little bit of uh, people time. Yeah. And, well, that's one yeah. of the things I was curious about is, is I've done a lot of these solo trips myself, um, but they're always, they've always been, you know, seven to 12 days. Um, yeah. And even in that period when I'm all by myself on a hunt of some kind, camping out on the back of my truck, even then it starts to, I, I like it a lot, but you mm-hmm. still do start to feel a little bit of that loneliness or a little bit of that kind of inside your head cabin fever. Um, how do you, how do you deal with that when you're doing that for 120 days? Or is it, or is it simply what you just said? You just talk to, to folks at the gas station or at the diner <laughs> or stuff like that. Is there any other things that you're doing to, to stay sane? Well, I think I probably started talking to myself on the on the second day there, uh, or second away from home. Um, it's it, that that starts pretty quick. It's when I start arguing with myself that's when I know there's a problem. <laughs> but the the uh, I'm a I'm a I don't know how you say this. Um, I can I can focus focus in on problems pretty pretty well. Uh, and when I have a target animal, if I if you know if I've found an animal, even if I haven't <clears throat> seen him in a long time, if I as long as I know it's there, it's super easy for me to focus and stay. Like, I mean, I literally, I wake up in the morning with one thought in my mind, the whole day hunt hard, go to bed, you know, in a tent somewhere on the side of a mountain, wherever I, my day ended, and the next day start over again. And then I'll, I'll, 10 days can go by before I realize, like, oh, crap, I'm out of food, and I got to hike back the truck and, or whatever. So it's it's only when I don't have that, uh, how would you say, that uh, point of focus. Say so you go somewhere and you scout for five days, you don't find anything. I, I don't find anything I want to hunt. That's when things start turning and getting weird. Mm-hmm. Um, or if uh, I've had, I've had literally had, you know, my buck shot out from underneath me. I've, I've, I've literally had <laughs> uh, gyroscoping pictures of a, uh, of a, of a buck that I found a couple days before. I uh, was on my way to another because I, 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 uh, I stopped in that state to just scout for like four or five days. I was leaving that state, go to another state to scout and then hunt. And I'm having dinner at a little restaurant and I look at my phone on Instagram and I saw the same buck that I just took pictures of an hour or two ago in the same bed. Someone else literally just found him. That's, that's, I mean, he hasn't even moved yet. Like he it was still there. 
and you know your heart sinks and it's it's times like that it's where it's really hard to just to to keep it together and to but if uh i guess if there's a, if, it, if that carrot's out in front of me if i can you know if i can see the end then it's really easy for me to just buckle down focus on what i got to do and get it done and then move on to the next state it's funny you mentioned that um you know, when you're so focused on something, I found personally, uh, when I'm hunting or fishing in particular for me, fly fishing and in in particular bow hunting, um, when I'm involved in one of those two things, almost nothing else can get in my head. Like for, for that five hours or that 10 hours or that seven days, I'm fully enveloped and consumed by this thing. And I don't think about politics and I don't think about the crap that's going on at home or some weird tiff with a friend or something going on with work. Um, I can just be wholly consumed by this one thing. And that's always been something that I think is is really unique that I, I don't know if I can find that anywhere else in the world in my life. Um, that's something that's always drawn me to these things, I think. Is that something that's true for you too? I mean, is that part of what pulls you out doing these things for so long? Is it to, I don't want to say it's an escape, um, but maybe maybe there's a little bit of that to what I like about it. I'm not sure how exactly I would explain it, but does any of that resonate with you? Yeah, yeah. No, that there's definitely a different feeling I get when I mean, literally, when I'm when I'm pulling up to a trailhead and there's a big mountain in front of me, and uh, there's you're not thinking about anything else. Like it's just I've got a big task in front of me, and maybe it's somewhere you've been, maybe it's somewhere you haven't been, but either way, it's there's a gigantic puzzle in front of you that you got to figure out and it's going to take everything you know if you want to do it the, you know get the most out of it, it's going to take everything you got to, to get it done yeah. and, and it's the same thing in the midwest too i mean um you know the problems are different but it's it's uh it's I, well with any trip no matter where you're going i guess as far as you know, on that same line of thought you have to have everything settled and good at home before you can go on a trip and be away from home doing, you know, doing a hunt like that for that, for any length of time. Otherwise, when you do get to the mountain, you're still going to be worrying about the problems yeah. you have you left at home. You, everything has to be buckled up and tied, you know, tidy at home before you can really enjoy anything, uh, you know, out there. So it's, but. That's a great point. Speaking along those lines, one of the things that, that, you know, I've talked about for years and years here on the podcast with, with my buddy, Dan, we've always talked about the challenges of, of how you can balance your love for hunting with your obligations at home and with your relationships. Um, how, what does that look like for you, um, with your now wife? Um, how, I think one of the biggest things that a lot of people have a hard time with is trying to explain to their significant other. And maybe it's maybe it's a wife, or maybe it's maybe the hunter's a female, and she's got a husband who doesn't get it. Whatever it is, mm-hmm. how explaining like why this matters so much, explaining why you have to go off for a seven day trip or a seven week trip. Um, how have you gone about trying to explain that to your girlfriend and now your wife, and and have it make sense <laughs> to her, or or is the reason she's your wife now because she just innately got it? <laughs> yeah, um, that there, there's probably a little bit of both there. She, uh, literally like on her first date, I'm, uh, you know, I, I learned real quick, you better explain it to him up front, uh, kind of what you do, uh, with your life if, or that's going to be a big surprise later for one of you. And so she, uh, she knew exactly what she was getting into. And you know, I think they all, 
would uh, like when you tell someone that you, you know, like when I tell somebody I hunt a lot, you know, and they're like, oh yeah, how much? I'm like, well, usually you know, three or four months. They're like, oh yeah, we we you know we hunt birds in September, and then you know, all the different seasons. I'm like, no, no, I'm I'm gone for three or four months straight, and so literally, I I remember telling Jody that uh, over the phone, um, and she uh, she's like, what do you mean? And I think we were FaceTiming, and I I literally like. I took my phone and I just kind of like, I was in my living room and I just kind of like did, made a little 360 spin <laughs> so she could see all, because I've got, I don't know, there's, I don't even know how many heads are in the house. And she's like, oh, that's a different type of uh, art than I was thinking it would be up on the walls in the house. But so she knew what she was getting into. Um, and she's seen the passion uh, that I have for it. And she knows, yeah, I'm a pretty passionate guy uh, about everything. And I remember, you know, after she knew me for a while and she'd look at some of the pictures uh, that I'd take on uh, these, you know, I, say after I got something on the ground or, um, and she could see the type of smile that I had. She's like, she's like, she's, I remember her saying like, I don't, I've never seen you smile like this. Like, I don't, like, I don't, I don't know that I've never seen you that happy before. Um, and uh, a couple of years ago, I got a chance to, take her with me she was able to get some time off uh from her work to go on a scouting trip up in colorado to the high country in late july she was mid-july and you know hike up above timberline it was just beautiful big green basins and she got to see all kinds of animals and um i think she i think she kind of fell in love with it too and i think she understood i mean she she gets why it's uh, means so much to me and um she realizes that that's just it's part of who I am. Yeah. Yeah. That's great to find a, a partner like that who can, you know, appreciate that and, and support you in that way. So this raises an interesting question though, because you have someone who understands why you love this and who's been out there with you and, and has found joy in it too. Um, why do you choose to do most of this stuff solo though? Um, I know I've got friends that wonder why I like to take off for these trips on my own. Um, my, my wife thinks, you know, why it's gotta be lonely or boring or dangerous or something. Um, and I certainly do like doing some trips with friends. There's a certain different kind of fun with that, but there's something special about taking off on your own and just being with yourself and the, the mission in front of you. Um, what's, what's that for you? Why is that an important part of what you do? Or, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's not an important part. Well, I think it started out as just a matter of, uh, I was, I was more effective. I was more lethal alone. Um, and I realized that when I was hunting in the Midwest with, with buddies who weren't as careful about how they got to their tree stands or got out at night, or they weren't as careful about, you know, uh, their scent setups or playing the wind. And it's like, I just got sick of dealing with, uh, and I love the guys. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're great guys. And I just got to the point where I'm like, I don't want to have to deal with everybody else's mistakes. I've got enough of my own. And I started hunting on my own and I started killing bigger, better animals. And so when I went to the mountains and started doing it out there, I just, it was natural to be alone. And you know, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, thank God for a couple of great websites out there that, you know, you know, you're, you can really learn a lot about that. <clears throat> but I, it's in, and, and, and honestly, I have hunted, uh, with somebody, uh, I think that this is two years in a row now. I've hunted uh, with a with a guy that I met on the side of a mountain uh, in Wyoming. We've uh, 
we became friends when we met, and then uh, he invited me to hunt with him in a, you know, just a general deer area in Wyoming the last couple of years, and I spent a week with him the last two years. But <clears throat> it's it's uh, <clears throat> it's not it's not hard for me to be alone. I think that it, like I I'm very comfortable. Uh, and, or like you know, I don't get scared. I don't get lonely. I mi- I shouldn't say I don't get lonely. I miss my you know family and friends, but it's not. Uh, uh, I don't need to. I don't, there's no nothing in me that just says I you know I need to have people around all the time. That's and that's probably my my true. You know that's that's kind of who I am. I've always just been a, a little bit of a loner. And uh, if the friends are around, great. If not, that's great too. But it definitely has its challenges. Uh, especially in the mountains when you get something down uh but it's the uh i actually look forward to hunting now probably with people those are like almost my my, you know the hunt in wyoming that i was talking about with my buddy derek um we didn't shoot deer last year neither of us here and it was one of my most memorable hunts of the year uh it was a lot of fun but so it's one of the hunts now that i look forward to and I'm sure there'll be more in the future where I'm not alone, but. So spending so much time on the road doing this kind of thing, um, I got to believe you've, you've put your gear through the ringer. You've put your whole camp life process through the ringer. You figured some stuff out by now. Um, Mm -hmm. What are a few of the most crucial pieces of gear that you've come across that just make living on the road or living in a pull-off on a national forest land or somewhere, <laughs> what are a couple of things that stand out as, man, this thing is the <laughs> ticket, or maybe it's a customized piece of gear or something. Is, is there a couple of things that stand out as something that, geez, has just changed your life in some small way? Oh, this is funny. Uh, it has really not much to do with hunting, but it's one of those little uh, pump showers that uh, <laughs> I think it's made by Nemo, and it's just this little teeny, you put a couple of gallons of water in it and step on it with your foot, it's just got like a six-foot hose on the end of it and it is a game changer like uh i yeah without that thing there are a lot of hunts that i'd be i'd be running 100 miles back every couple of days for a shower because there's just no other good sources of water no cricks to jump in and um that thing has saved me a lot of fuel and time um good food um when you're gone that like so when i leave my whole truck is packed for you know, for that entire time, I've got a little trailer I pull behind me with freezers and coolers. And uh, the last couple of years, I've taken a quad, literally a small, the smallest 4 by 4 ATV I could find just because I beat my truck up so much over the years. And every, the whole back of the truck's just full of gear, and, but but very organized. And all of those things in there, like there's nothing in the truck I don't need. And there's a bunch of things that I have spares of. One of the most important things that, and that's something I overlooked the first few years, is food. Because when you're living off from dehydrated or freeze-dried food for that long, um, and snack bars and jerky, and uh, you know, just you, you know, the lightweight things that we take up the mountains with us, or the things that we have in a on a, in a tent somewhere, it is just it. It gets old real fast. Your body doesn't doesn't do well with it, and I would say food is one of the like good like good good freeze dried food, and there are some really good options out there now. Um, <clears throat> and good bars, like you have to be really careful with that stuff. You know your your average, and I think they're getting better. But the old standby, like you know what they call power bars or whatever, those things are just full of sugar. And 
a bunch of them were, and, and there's a bunch of healthy ones now, but yeah, a shower and good food basically is <laughs> those are the key things that that people wouldn't think of that are pretty key in the truck. Yeah. So what's what's the food of choice? What's your favorite brands or meals or bars? Um, what ends up in your truck when you head out for these things? Well, the bars. I'm always there's so many new ones out there. It's almost like I, I think there's three or four different brands in my in my hometown now. Um, so I'm always trying new bars, uh, and that and that's I really haven't settled on one. Um, but as far as freeze dried food, food, um, there's a small company uh, uh, called Off Grid Food Company, and they make absolutely fantastic freeze dried food, and and it's uh, I I want to say it's all organic. Uh, all their like, there's no like, if you if anyone's ever eaten Mountain House for a long time, you know it's just packed full of sodium. Yeah. I think that's part part of it. I think it's just a part of the uh, way to keep it, keep its shelf life. But I, I want to say Off Grid only uses sea salt, so it's 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 got a lot of sea salt in it, but it's it's naturally healthy salt. Um, so it, the difference in the way I feel after eating that for five days versus or, or fifty versus. Uh, a mountain house is substantial and uh and, and they're good they're good people too there's nothing better than finding a product you love and then getting to meet the people that they you know they're behind it and they're they're great dudes so that's awesome now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go. But here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. I, When I talk to someone like you and hear about the things that you're doing out there, it gives me this itch to get out and do something like that too. It gives me, like, I already have that, that itch right now, this time of year, I've got crazy yeah. cabin fever. I just want to get out doing some, something different and take off on a road trip and head off in the mountains or whatever it might be. 
Um, but I'm definitely getting that again, just hearing you describing, you know, the trips that you're going on and I'm getting inspired. Who has inspired you when it comes to this stuff? Is there, is there a, a person or is there a book or a writer or a movie or anything out there that has kind of inspired this wanderlust or sense of adventure mm. in you? Well, that's a good one. Um, I well, my, you know, my dad was the guy that had me in a tree stand when I was eight years old, you know, tell me to be quiet, uh, for, you know, but he never, I don't think he ever hung out of the state until I was out of high school. Um, and I'm taking him back to Kansas this year, uh, with me for the first time and who knows how long, um, he's definitely been my biggest inspiration in the hunting side of my life. Um, but as far as inspiration for, getting up you know and, and doing doing the the you know the hunting away from home there wasn't i when i started doing it around the midwest i really didn't know of anybody else that was doing it um i'm sure there was it just you know it was prior to the internet and or well maybe not the internet but social media and there wasn't uh there just wasn't anybody that i knew of doing it um when i started to transition to the mountains and the plains from the midwest uh, Aaron Snyder, the the now president of Kafaro, mm -hmm. was one of the guys that <clears throat> you know was one of the guys that uh, you know, back in the days on the forums and stuff, he was willing to help guys and uh, he helped me um, a lot. So you know, I, I reached out to him at a, uh, out of a necessity. I'd bought a backpack that was just killing me, um, and I reached out to him, and it wasn't even the backpack that that he sold. But he helped me, uh, you know, figure out how to get it fit to me. And then he gave me some advice on my next backpack purchase, which was one of theirs. And it, oh my God. Yeah. So he was, he was a big help. But the, I mean, I don't, I've never really, really been someone to like uh, idolize anybody. Uh, so it's just been, there's been some people that have helped me along the way, but, um, just as far as men, yeah, the mentors are really Yeah, Rock Slide was a, like I said before, that if it wasn't for, you know, like the information that's on the internet, uh, like on places like Rock Slide where I, you know, I write for sometimes, they, that helps guys, like, I didn't, I didn't know anything, you know, it helps guys that, you know, you want, you're in the Midwest and you want to come out to the mountains and do a DIY hunt, you can literally, you know, there's guys in there that'll help you and there's information there that'll help you with, you know, whatever you want. It's, I didn't, uh, it really, it, it takes a lot of pain on a learning curve for sure. And that's, yeah. that's basically all I did. Yeah. A lot of great resources out there. So, there so as I understand it, it was somewhere around 2011, or I guess maybe I'm totally wrong on that. Um, but at some point as you start heading out West more and more often, start doing the whole mountain thing the prairie hunting, um, mm -hmm. I think I read somewhere that somewhere around 2011, you realize that when it came to whitetails, you didn't want to use a tree stand anymore. You decided to ditch the standard game that you've been doing forever and stay on the ground. Um, first off, is that correct? And then secondly, yeah. how did you come to this epiphany <clears throat> that you were going to be a more lethal hunter on the ground than in a tree? That is a, that there's a lot there, there. That's a whole podcast. Uh, <laughs> the, so I grew up, like, like I said, I was in the tree stand and my dad was kind of one of those guys that was not afraid of heights. 
and none of his hunting buddies would climb his tree stands. And I was up there at eight years old with him. And so my tree stands became the same way. When I was hunting the Midwest, none of my buddies would use my stands because it was not uncommon for them to be 30 feet plus in the air. And uh, I, I, I saw once, um, it, not, not that that had any effect on me not wanting to hunt him anymore, but uh, I've lived the whole, you know, sit in a tree stand all day, all of November, every single day of the month. I've done that, the whole program. So, and I, I understand all how effective it can, can be uh, when you're in the right places. Um, it wasn't until I was in Kansas, um, my very first year there, and the guys that <clears throat> invited me to come with them, they were actually rifle hunters. And so my first year, my first three years in Kansas, we were actually, we were actually hunting with a rifle. Um, we got there, and the one, you know, they had hunted previously there just bird hunting, and the rancher always told them, hey, you guys want to ever shoot, shoot some of these brown uh, you know, rats, as he called them, just come on out here and anytime you want. And, like, I mean, he's a rancher that has just who knows how much property and knows everybody else. And so he met us at, we met him at this, this four corner out in the middle of nowhere when it's just flat as a pancake. I can't, I can't see a tree. We pull over on Southern road. There is this truck and we go through the introductions. He's like, well, I wanted to meet here because we've got the Northwest section to us here. And then uh, across the road, I've got the first half of this section. And then, you know, we got, and he's, and he's pointing at all the, you know, and he's, talking and all this different stuff. I'm looking around, I'm like, where the hell are we going to kill a deer here? There's not a single tree. There's not a bush. And uh, we, then we, we drove from spot to spot, and he showed us probably 15 spots that afternoon. And there was one property that had some, like a little river bottom, you know, some like a choked, thick uh, little river bottom section. And all of us, just our eyes just lit up on that. Like, that's where we're going to be hunting. And, uh, that first uh, opening day came and we were all kind of covering different corners of that, that little uh, brushy creek bottom that we had found. And we saw some bucks, nothing, nothing good. But all of us, when we got back, we're like, yeah, I was seeing, but I was glassing up deer, like way out in the middle of the grass, just bedded. They were walking around and they bed in the grass and they just disappear. And it took us a while to realize that the deer there weren't, they weren't, uh, they weren't living where there was trees. They weren't staying where there were trees. They weren't, I mean, they go through there, they move through there, but they weren't using it for bedding. They weren't using it for, it was just a travel corridor. It was all it was. And it wasn't even one that they used often. Um, and that's obviously going to change in different areas where there's more trees or whatever. But for us, it became a, out of necessity. It's like, well, there's no sense in having a tree stand or even a ground blind at this point we just got to stay mobile and use our glass and then find them and then put a plan together. Um, and that's how, it, that's how it started. I think that same year that I went down there, um, 11 or 12, one or two, uh, and I guess it was, what was before that actually that, that year in Kansas, but a couple years later was my last year in Illinois that I hung out of a tree stand and, um, I haven't went back. I, I always keep one. I always keep a lone wolf in the back of the truck just in case I find that one spot where whatever. I, I know there's there's situations I've came across where I'm like, dang it, if I just if if I just sit on this water hole, um, that bull's going to come in or that buck's going to – he's using it every day. It's dry. So there's – yeah, I'm, I'm not ignorant to the fact that I'm missing some opportunities by sticking to the ground only. Um, and, I, and I'm not – 
count it out, but I'm having so much more fun on the ground. It's, um, you know, rack, uh, rattling them in, uh, decoying them in, calling them, um, just spotting stalks, sneaking, you know, crawling up on a bed, a, a bedded buck is, it's just so much more fun than sitting there freezing <laughs> your tail off. Um, and I think that I was, one, I was having more fun. Two, I was killing bigger, better bucks every year doing it. And three, I, I mean, I was just sick of sitting in the tree stands. The, 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 it just, it just became something that I just didn't, a tool that I just don't use very often anymore. So I want to get, I want to get into the nitty gritty of, of how you actually pull off a hunt like this. I want to get into the actual step-by-step process of finding deer Mm -hmm. and stalking them down on the ground. But before, before we get into how you actually do that, I've heard you talk about pulling this off in places like Kansas or Montana, um, different plains kind of open prairie type habitat doing this mm-hmm. ground pound for whitetails. But do you think that anything you've done there and had success, could that be replicated or, or could some of that translate to trying to hunt on the ground in somewhere like Iowa or Michigan or Pennsylvania in certain circumstances? Like, is there any way that this could work somewhere else or does this strategy, is this mm. prairie only? Uh, that's a good question. I, I have not hunted Pennsylvania I've, I've killed Michigan deer on the ground. My best Michigan buck I killed on the ground. Um, it, it's very terrain. It's, it's, it's a hundred percent terrain dependent. Um, if it's open enough where you can see them and either see where they're going to or coming from, uh, have them patterned or see them bed, then it's doable. Um, all you need is a lack of other eyes from other deer to pick you off and to know where their location is. And then it's just a matter of putting in, you know, the variables, lining everything up and in your favor and, uh, you know, don't let them see you, smell you, hear you and slide in and get an arrow in them. I mean, it's, I think a lot of guys overthink it sometimes. Um, but I, I know I've hunted Illinois and Iowa and a lot of spots where there's the, the deer just don't bed where you are going to be able to see them. So it's in those spots where I've hunted in the Midwest, most of them, it's probably not going to work. Um, Maybe there are some spots in western Iowa that'd be better, but where I hunted there, it was you know those deer were they were you know buried in like a tick uh, where they were sleeping. So, um, so it's yeah. terrain and cover dependent. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So then let's revert though back to what sounds like is your favorite kind of area for this kind of thing, which is that open ground kind of country. Mm-hmm. Um, first off, I I have started to hunt in some of these states. I've hunted Nebraska, North Dakota, Montana for whitetails. And I've fallen in love with that Great Plains habitat and and just everything about it. Um, and I've loved now taking my favorite game animal and chasing it in this different kind of setting. Why is it for you that it's so much fun or so different or so compelling that from what it sounds like, it seems like almost all of your whitetail hunting now is is out in those kinds of places or at least a good part of it. Why is that so, I mean, is it just the ability to tra- track them in on the ground or is there something more to it? I think, uh, well, I mean, you grew up in Michigan, you know what it's like there. I mean, we have how many hunters in the field on opening day of, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, Whole lot. I, don't even, I don't even want to guess, right? Like everybody you meet is an outdoorsman here and we kill what, a couple hundred thousand deer a year. Yeah. Um, you go to Kansas and they, 
you look at their numbers, they kill 50,000, 60,000 deer a year. That's it. Um, you go out there during rifle season, you'll see people driving around. You'll see orange in the trucks, and you'll see people hunting. You go out there and during bow season, uh, I, I know exactly who I'm going to see. It's the same guys I see every single year down there. They don't know what they're doing. They're really great guys. I try to help them out. They don't listen to me. They think I'm crazy <laughs> for not for you know for not hunting in my tree stand on the one tree on my property that you know that we hunt down there. It's like, and so part of it is that I've got. I mean, it's crazy. I, I knock on doors and I don't get told no during bow season down there. People just, it's uh, so that that's a wonderful part of it. Um, the the way that the whitetails act in those open prairie areas too, whether it be uh, Nebraska, Eastern Montana, Kansas, they are very, very, very aggressive. And I think it's just because this is also my theory on why they have so many more broken tines. Like I've, I don't remember the last Kansas buck I shot that doesn't have, didn't have broken tines. Now the one I got this year, he broke one overnight from the night when I first found him to when I found him the next morning and killed him. Um, I think that you, t- you take two big, aggressive, mature bucks in the rut in Iowa. They're 500 yards away from each other on the same property, walking in opposite directions, parallel with each other. They aren't going to see each other, most likely. There's too many terrain changes. There's too many, you know, creeks, streams, trees, whatever. It's thick. They can't see each other. They're not going to fight today. You take the same two bucks in Kansas, same distance apart. They're, they see each other. And they're going to close that 500 yards and they're going to square off. And I see it happen all the time. I think they fight way more out there and it makes them way more susceptible to to decoying, more susceptible to to rattling and calling. And it, I mean, you, you want to talk about excitement. Uh, I think it's four years now I've been using the little heads up decoy uh, thing. I stick on my bow and there's a little mount in front of my, or behind my uh, stabilizer. I stick the decoy on that thing, and every single year since I've started using it in Kansas, it's part of the it's part of like why and how I killed the buck. I mean, they see that and they just pin their ears back and they don't even look at you again. They're coming in there and they're gonna come kick your ass. <laughs> I, I swear to God, oh, the big the, the older bucks see that and they don't. You could you could move around, you could shuffle. It's like they don't even they don't even look again their eyes roll back like a moose like you see in the, in the movies and their head starts wobbling back and forth and they just put on a show and walk right to you um it's and that that stuff happens more often than than not it's and that's probably because i'm targeting the, the biggest old mature bucks maybe the, the younger ones would neck that way and they, but um I mean, there's nothing more exciting than that so that's it's easy for me not to you know, my time's valuable, right? And so I've got all these different states and tags lined up. You know, for me to take time out of November to go hunt Illinois, it's, it's tough anymore because I, I go and sit in a tree stand and hope something comes by or you don't want to go to Kansas or, you know, Nebraska and make something happen. Yeah, I get that. I can see the appeal to that for sure. Um, so I want to, I want to talk a lot more about that whole decoy thing you're doing, but before that, mm. I want to I want to rewind a little bit mm. and and try to walk through the entire process, and then we'll get to the decoying part when we get to that in your hunt. But let's let's say we're heading out for a hypothetical trip like this, um, or how about this? I want to go out and do a hunt like this myself this year, 
And for the last like five years, I've been heading out west at the beginning of September to do a western whitetail hunt. And um, and I've got a certain way I've gone gone about it. But I've always focused on the river bottoms. I've never focused on the open country like you have. I've I've found a I would always look for a piece of public land that has a river running through it with a bunch of cottonwoods and you know Russian olive cover and stuff like that. Something that's going to get those deer down into that tight space. And then I would observe and then hang tree stands based off what I saw, you know, bed to feed patterns and, and ambush them in that kind of way. Um, yep. But you seem like you've got a very different way to do it. How do you go about just finding the starting point? Because for me, it's looking online and finding those river bottoms that intersect with public land. And that's my starting point. But when you're looking for the kind of place that has your kind of hunting and that kind of whitetail experience, what are you looking for to just like figure out where to start when you're scouting maps or whatever? <clears throat> Well, basically, you know, it, it, I look for, you know, it's most of, most of my, I do a lot of e-scouting, I guess you could say, like you're talking there uh, in the mountains, but as far as the Midwest or, you know, the, the plains and stuff, all my, <clears throat> all my hunting spots that I hunt now and I use now have came from firsthand being there, being in the area and just looking on with my, you know, boots on the ground, um, or, you know, more often in that area, it's, you're sitting behind a wheel um, and just covering ground and looking and then knocking on doors. I think that, you know, obviously they need they need food. And, you know, there's never a, a problem with, you know, food. There's usually not a problem with water. The most of the, the good luck that I have uh, on this type of hunting is in November. So at that point, the bucks aren't thinking about food anyways. Um, so if you can find the does, there's most likely going to be bucks around. Um, and that's, and that's basically it. And then it's just a matter of, you know, you know, let's say like in Kansas, uh, knocking on doors for me, getting as much, acquiring as much permission as possible. A lot of that land that I have permission to hunt on is open to anybody that asks. I mean, it's not, it's not like I have sole permission on it. Um, they'll say yes to just about anybody as long as you know you promise to close gates and don't leave any trash and don't drive over their fields. It's there's just it's just acquire as much as you can, look for the does, and keep watching those little groups. And eventually, a buck will show up. And it's it's really it's a lot simpler. To me, it's a lot simpler than than. Uh, and, the, and there's less variables than, than when you're hunting in the mountains. Um, it's just a matter of, uh, just gotta, you just gotta find the does. Okay. That, that makes sense. I like that. Let's say then that we, or I, I'm going to keep my hypothetical me into this. Um, mm-hmm. I decide that I'm going to try this kind of hunting. I, found an area in eastern Montana or North Dakota or South Dakota or Kansas mm-hmm. or Nebraska. I found some stuff. It's got some big open grassy hills. There's some river bottom. There's a few little ponds. There's a little bit of everything. It looks kind of good. And either I've got a bunch of free permission or there's public land and a bunch of it that I can roam. Mm-hmm. Now I'm heading out there and I arrive and you're with me and you're my, you're my guide telling me what we should do, how we should start hunting or how we should start scouting. We just arrive. Walk mm-hmm. me through what we're doing next. Are we gonna spend the first morning, first night scouting, or or just just walk me through what you're gonna say? Let's let's do this. Let's imagine it's midday, 
uh, and what would what we do is drive around and find all the high points and whether it be the farmer's barn if he has a ladder that goes up the side of it or a silo or uh, maybe an oil well or an oil retain or retainer um, or maybe even just a hill and those are gonna be all the spots that we're gonna cover the last two hours and the first two hours of every day and we're gonna sit up there and we're gonna glass and we're gonna we're gonna rush from one spot to the next we're gonna be at one of them uh you know if there's one of those spots maybe there's maybe there's one of those that you <clears throat> there's a potential for bucks or for deer to be all the way around at 360 degrees well, we're not gonna try to get to that one first thing in the morning because we're gonna be bumping deer we're gonna save that one until it's after it's daylight and we can kind of slide in from one way or the other but um we'll want to be at one of them at first or at daylight and then uh, it's just a matter of covering ground and find them uh, one of the things that we realized we were doing wrong in kansas uh right away uh, me uh, it took us a, a year to figure it out but we were doing it wrong right away and what is what i mean was the old mentality of getting to your tree stand or your blind or whatever you know a half hour sometimes an hour before daylight i heck i remember sleeping in a stand in illinois all night long because i couldn't <laughs> figure out i couldn't figure out how to get into the stand at night or in the morning I mean, and i literally took a sleeping bag and I, I went in at night in the afternoon and hunted it and then i stayed up there and because i didn't know how to get in there in in the morning and did you kill did you kill a buck the next day with that devotion no no Dang. no i pushed him to the next guy and he in the next property over and he killed him <laughs> that was part of my young and dumb years but so we were literally i mean bumping deer just moving to our you know our spots and unless you have and i think that's one of the i think that's one of the biggest mistakes that are the hardest things to overcome for a midwestern hunter is getting to and from your stands without being seen and i think it's one of the most broken you know like rules of like you can't let that happen and guys do every single time but that was what we were doing out there we were moving in in the dark and then we'd see deer you know three quarters of a mile off whatever looking back at us when it when daylight finally broke i think that once we realized that and we started waiting i mean there's there's mornings where i'm sitting in my truck until it's daylight the truck's off i'm just sitting there waiting and and then i'll move up to my glassy knob because there could be something in between and if there is he might bound over those deer might bound over and then blow the ones out that you know that i'd be seeing once i got up to the glassy knob it's just not it's not worth uh the risk you gotta you know taking care of all the variables and getting all that uh, all the little things squared away that's not not one i'm willing to compromise on it's how how yeah. much so so back to the getting your glassing knobs yeah, how yeah. much time will you spend in each spot before you say okay it's time to move on to the next one if you haven't found a buck you're interested in so that's question number one and then question yep. number two is how many chances will you give a spot? Because I've debated this mm. a lot myself, right? I've got a yeah. handful of different locations, and I, I'll go the one night and check, nothing. I'll go back yeah. the next morning, nothing. Then I'm thinking, do I just cross it off, or do I have to keep coming back? Um, how much time per, and then how many different times will you go back and look? Well, <clears throat> this is if we're doing it in November, uh, I think you're gonna you're gonna have a, already a handle on. Or you're, if you don't, you're going to figure out real quick how how the rut's doing in your area, and you're going to know pretty quick when you get there. If you see does and they're up feeding, and there's no buck with them. He's not there, 
maybe he is, maybe he's just tired, dead tired and he's you know laying over in some cut stubble. You just can't haven't picked him out yet. But I don't give it too long. I mean, as soon as I have everything, you know, 360 degree, you know, sweep of what I can see, if I've covered everything, I'm moving to the next spot because I've got a bunch of spots to to glass, and I've got a lot of, you know, you know, if I can if I can glass ten, well, that's more that's better than five. Yeah, it's better than it's. I think it, how should I say that? It's better to quickly yet thoroughly glass ten spots than it is to really just pick apart five. Um, now that's only I'm only saying that because it's during the rut. Now, if this was October, it'd be a completely different game. If it were in the mountains, where or, you know you're picking apart, uh, you, you know, in, in thicker terrain, it's when they're going to be bedded. It's a completely different game. But right, you know, in November active you know sometimes i don't think those guys those bucks don't don't lay down for days on end all they're doing is you know keep trying to keep his dough or get a new one or whatever and i think it you know if you're in the right spot you're going to know it now how many times do i keep coming back uh boy indefinitely i i've literally uh, there's there's spots that i stop in glass just because it's i can see so much from it uh and i've probably never made a stock from that spot or that probably got dozens of those spots. Um, but every year one of them, you know, like one new spot, I'm like, Oh, we got something here. And then, you know, and then you, you move to a different spot where you got a better angle of them. And, you know, you just try to keep your eyes on them until, until they either, you know, bed or start feeding or whatever, slow down. Once, once they, once they, uh, how would you say it? Uh, make themselves, uh, vulnerable vulnerable to a play of some sort yeah but but i heard you once talking about how one of the biggest challenges of this part of your strategy is just trying to get elevated enough to be able to get yeah. an angle down and and you kind of jokingly said that you wanted to someday mount a ladder to the top <laughs> of your truck topper just so mm-hmm. you could get up there and look have you ever did you ever actually do that <laughs> or do you ever no. have any other good tricks for getting a better advantage uh I have not mounted the ladder. Um, I've stood on the top of my truck a lot. Um, anybody that buys a used truck for me, uh, <laughs> it hopefully hasn't looked up on top because there's probably some scratches on top of the uh, the cab. The cab. But um, and sometimes that's all you need. I mean, when, when I'm saying these high points and stuff, I mean a lot of them are only you know 20 foot difference, but it's just a gentle rolling hill. But if you, and you might have to be two miles away from where you think the deer are going to be, but and be two miles away to the high point so it's it's not always close proximity either so you got to have good glass uh but i think that just getting creative with your with your vantage points um i haven't went as far as to knock on a door not for permission to hunt their property but just maybe to climb their barn but i've thought about it there are a couple spots where the, I know that, you know, with Onyx, you can tell they don't own much property. They've only got five, 10 acres there. There's, there's really no, no hunting on their, their, there's no, there's not going to be any good hunting on their property, but they've got a gorgeous barn. that's 30 feet high in the back, you know, behind their house. If I could get on top of that thing, man, I'd be able to see everything. So maybe one of these years I'm going to stop at that place and ask them, but that's, that's the way my mind works when I'm out there. I'm looking for, for anything. And I've climbed silos, um, but I'm also someone that's not afraid of heights, you know, with my line of work, um, I'm, you know, that's, I'm comfortable up there. Uh, so it's, yeah, it, that's, it's everything down there because, uh, it's pretty flat. It all comes down to getting eyes on them. Now, yep. 
one of the things that I a big paradigm shift, I guess, for me when it came to glassing and finding game was realizing how much it helps to use a tripod with your binos. Mm. I never used to do that. And yeah. um, a friend finally just showed me what a difference it made. And, and now I'll never go out in yeah. this kind of hunt without that. Um, is that something that helps you? Is there Are there any other tips or pieces of gear or anything else that's led you to become a more effective scouting uh, with the glass kind of guy? No, that the, you, you nailed it right there. Uh, good glass, good tripod, uh, a tripod that can, like for the type of hunting that we're talking about, I like a full height one, so I don't have to, I don't have to sit down on the ground. I, you know, yeah. I, there's no sense in finding a high spot and then sitting down. Um, so I literally will run to these, these high spots and I'm most of the time I'm not, I'm not even taking time to sit and I'm, you know, I'm standing up, uh, and I'm, you know, I've got a full, you know, six foot tall tripod or whatever, you know, and it's, I, I want something that I can buy the binos on. And that is, uh, yeah, people who haven't done it don't understand. Maybe they kind of take for granted what we're seeing, like, is like, nah, they're just over talking that because I'm trying to sell a product or something. It is huge. The difference between hand holding a pair of binoculars and looking through them, sitting on a tripod is huge. You will find so many more animals. Um, but uh, get as good a glass as you can. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it, it, the good good glass isn't, isn't cheap. So it's <clears throat> it's an investment. But uh, that that is, huh, as far as finding animals, man, Onyx on your phone is a must or, or, you know, or, or similar product for uh, land mapping software. Uh, good glass, good boots, good tires on your truck. Um, I don't know how many flats I've had over the years and, uh, yeah, there's, it's, it's all simple stuff uh, that goes wrong, but, uh, usually, but the, it's the, it's the, that simple stuff that'll screw up everything when it's, you don't have it either. Yeah. All right. So we've been here on the ground in wherever we're at, we're in Nebraska, we'll say, and mm-hmm. we've been looking and maybe evening number two, we finally spot, well, actually before I even say that. Tell me this, do you, and I'm, I'm, I think I already know the answer, but if you spot a shooter, whatever that is for you on this given hunt, um, are you going to go and, and change your position or try to make a move or will you see a shooter, but think to yourself, man, I don't know how I can make a play on him right now. So instead of keeping eyes on him, I'm going to move to this other area and check and see if there's a huntable buck there. Um, or is it once you see a shooter buck, like you're staying on him until it's dark or, or until he makes a mistake? What's your thought process there? Uh, when I see something that is uh, in the terms of, you know, gets my blood going and it's something that my my brain says, this is one we'd be very, very happy with. Uh, all my focus is on him. Um, and things happen when you put yourself in the best available uh what's what's the word i'm looking for the best available proximity so say he's out in a big wide open flat he's got you know two or three does with him and there's another couple satellite bucks they're trying to move in and they're all kind of spread out around him and there's just no way in um and you're half mile away on a, you know, a little bit of a rise where you can just see over in there. 
well, maybe you can't get all the way to them, but maybe you can circle down and get the wind where it's quartering. Uh, maybe not right straight downwind because that's I can't stand being right straight downwind of them because that's where they always expect danger to come from. But maybe get on that quartering side of them and then just get as close as you can and then see what happens. Um, maybe they'll move. Maybe they'll move right to you. I've literally had them just walk up to me like, I'm just dumb luck. Um, maybe one of those little bucks will come in there and challenge him and he'll run and chase him off and they'll run right past you. Um, so I get as close as I can without being protected. And sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it gets dark and you got to sneak back out and start over the next day. But I, yeah, if I find something I want to, that I'm, that I'm going to be happy with, uh, put my arrow through or bolt through it's my focus is on him. And, um, even, even if it's not a like slam dunk opportunity, like, Oh my God, he's bedded right there. And so I can just walk up that little quick bottom, pop out over the top, sneak over the, and just slam dunk shot. I will still get as, you know, put as many variables in my favor, get as close as I can, or at least in the position, the best position I think I can be in and then just wait him out. So you're saying even if, even if he's moving, even if he's covering ground, you're not going to stay in your spot and watch and watch and watch to see where he beds oh. or ends up. You'd rather just get after him once you spot him and, and or well, no, the if, if he's moving, if he's moving, I'm going to try to keep my eyes on him. Um, no, I, I, sorry. I, I was thinking I was, I was seeing in my head, like uh, deer kind of just feeding in an area or if they're mo- if he's moving and <clears throat> if it's morning, uh, I'm expecting him to two bed soon. I'm going to, I'm going to keep my eyes on him. That's, that's how I killed my buck this last year. I mean, I, found him right at daylight and he moved and I had, I had to take my eyes off him because he went over the, you know, I just could not see him from, from the side of the country mile, you know, square section that I was on. I had to drive all the way around the other side and find a new high spot and then re-pick him up. Thank God he was still on his feet. Uh, but I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's do whatever you can to keep your eyes on him to, to find, uh, find where he beds. Okay. So watch him until he stops for a long time or beds and then you make your move. Um, <laughs> Yeah. What then? Like, what is going? I know this is very situation mm-hmm. dependent. Every situation is a little different. But just kind of generically, what are the, what's the checklist of things or the handful of things that are going through your mind as you, you you packed up your tripod and your binos or your spotting scope and you say, okay, I'm going for it. What are the the next steps? The next things you're thinking in your mind as you figure out how you're going to get closer, how you're going to make your stock. So, on a whitetail <clears throat> in this situation. If I if I've watched him, I'm, <clears throat> he's bedded. <clears throat> excuse me. He's bedded and he's got a doe with him, most likely. Um, not very often are you going to find uh, a mature buck. Uh, at least not one that I'm going to want to kill in this area. You're in, in you know in the Midwest uh, in November alone. So he's going to have a doe with him. They're going to they're going to bed somewhere where <clears throat> they think they have the advantage of the wind and their sight. Um. In these areas where it's a little more open, the wind is your friend, uh, not just from keeping your scent away, but for noise too. They don't really, they don't rely on their ears nearly as much as, uh, you know, a, a, a more of a Midwest, a thicker mid, traditional Midwest uh, whitetail. It's, uh, it's always windier there and uh, lots of dry brush always just clanking together, but they'll bed somewhere where they can see. They rely on their eyes more. And then obviously they use their nose just as much as any whitetail. 
uh, so, I, so I say I've got them bedded, uh, you know, on a fence line or something, whereas tumble, the tumbleweeds have all piled up and those, those things will get like 10 foot high piles of tumbleweeds and they will bed right inside them sometimes. Um, but, uh, uh, windbreak too, but so find out where they're bedded, move in, and at that point, I'm not. I'm gonna I'm gonna ditch the dry, the tripod and the glass. Uh, all I'm moving in with is a rangefinder, binoculars, or a rangefinder, my bow, and or gun. Uh, most most times it's, it's a bow hunt though, and uh, I'll probably take my rail handlers, and I'll have that decoy mounted in front of my bow. I'll also take a little stake for that decoy too, so I can stick it out. Uh, by itself in the ground <clears throat> but it, it mounts to my bow and i can shoot the bow with it on there and it doesn't hinder it at all unless it's windy um and i'll move in from a quartering angle i don't want to be straight downwind i don't want to be you know they're they're going to be looking downwind so i want to be i want to be to the point where the wind is almost wrong um another thing that you, you, you tend to get out in the plains is more consistent winds you don't have as many, you know, you don't have as many trees, you, don't have, you know, all these things that block wind and make swirling winds just aren't there. No, you still get ridges and bottoms and stuff, you know, like low, low and high spots that create uh, eddies in the, in the air currents and that can mess up your wind. But most of the time, you get a much more consistent wind than you would in other places. So you can risk, you can put yourself in a riskier position than you could in other areas because you know that. You know, your wind's only 20 degrees off from, off from him, <clears throat> which might only be like 20 yards. If he stood up and walked 20 yards to the right, he smells that. But he's not going to. And if he does get up, you're going to shoot him because you're going to be inside his zone by that point. And then I'll just move in as quickly as I can before they get up because, <clears throat> as it, you know, as I said, they fight so much more down there. If you got a hot doe, uh, which if you find a mature buck, he's probably going to have, you know, he's almost always got a hot dog because he's he's the man right he's the one that's out there kicking all the our deer's ass and he's the one that's like all right these this dough is mine but he's always gonna have challengers around and they're gonna come up and they're gonna constantly be bugging him so it's not uncommon for him to be getting up every 15 20 minutes and having to run off a little buck which is a great time for you for you or to if you're hopefully already in position within your you know effective lethal range with your weapon to show them your decoy and that usually doesn't take much and just flashing that deep you know holding your bow up he sees it and his he'll he'll usually look at you look at the other buck pin his ears back and just come over like almost like he's trying to make you know loud racket with his you know, with his front paws as he slams him in the dirt you know just clanking his way over to you um if there's no other bucks to keep keep getting them up you could i've <clears throat> stayed out you know 40 50 yards and tickled the antlers you know railing antlers together to kind of like pique his interest and then as soon as you know he picks his head up you know he sees the decoy and, and you know again they come in um it doesn't always work that way but <clears throat> with the older more mature bucks yeah if they see that decoy they're coming in and you know and i'll be honest with you in a perfect world i don't care if he sees that decoy i just want to get him killed right so the decoy is kind of my out. If I can, if I can, if he beds in a spot where I can sneak up and shoot him without him ever seeing me or me ever making a noise, that's that's the, the main goal. But that hardly ever happens. Um, without without varying, uh, how would you say, elevation changes in the terrain, uh, 
it's hard to do a traditional spot and stalk where you literally can get you know a height a height advantage where you can shoot them in their beds. Most time in these in these plain states, you need them to stand up and make the next move, or, the, or I should say the last move, um, for it to happen. Uh, and that's that's usually the way it goes down. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go. But here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Can you can you describe a little bit for people that aren't familiar um, this heads-up decoy that you're using and how exactly yeah. that works? And then, and then once you describe kind of the basics... You know, I'm curious about a little more detail of, of how you're using it. Like if you have to cover a hundred yard or maybe there's a 50 yard stretch of open ground to the next patch of cover you could hunker down in and this the, the deer are going to see you. Will you consider sprinting across that with the decoy in front of you um, or or is it m- much more conservative uses? I'm guessing give me the give me the basics of what it is and then describe some situations where you will use it and how. Yeah, it's it's not a full uh, deer silhouette. It is just a basically like a you know like like the old school neck mounts. Like everybody gets shoulder mount now of a deer on on the wall. <clears throat> but you remember like seeing ones before it was just like a neck mount. Yeah, so it's only yeah. Like, like that was kind of weird. That like half the mount's gone. That's about all it is. So it's like it's not real tall. It's not real big. I mean, usually I'm I'm in a kneeling crouch position when I, when when I'm you know ready for the deer to be. Or when I should say, when I'm ready for the deer to see me, <clears throat> you know, and so they technically they can see part of my legs, my shoulders, but they just seem to look right, right through me. Um, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say I'd, I'd feel safe, you know, just stand up and covering ground. I have used it, um, 
as I was sneaking up on a buck facing the opposite way. And as soon as he'd like start moving his head a lot, I just, I just hunker down, <clears throat> hold it in front of me. And he would just kind of like look over and look away, but he never did catch me moving. Um, but I was also being very careful. I wasn't, uh, you know, I, and that was the last that was moving in for a second shot on a, after a bad first shot. So that was a dire situation, but I wouldn't say I routinely trust it to, to cover my, my motion. It's not real big, but the, but the heads up decoy is pretty, pretty awesome. It's got a, and it's not just for white deer. They offer them for all different animals. Um, the mule deer one works great too. Um, the turkey one works amazing, uh, but it, <coughs> excuse me, it has a uh, carbon rod in the bottom of it that slides into a sleeve that amounts right in front of your stabilizer hole, and it doesn't weigh hardly anything. Um, the antlers are foam, and they can you can take them off, and they slide right inside the, the body of the decoy, which is like a, a thin cloth material. Um, it doesn't weigh. It, you can toss it right in your backpack. You can hold it. You know, if you were hunting with a buddy, he can literally just hold it with his hand. Um, and then, so there's a ground stake too. The, it's, it's pretty simple. It's pretty ingenious. Um, you know, you're basically shooting, uh, it, it's just to the side of your bow. <clears throat> the only downside to it is, uh, the wind. If it's, if it's windy, uh, it, I would, that's when I keep that little ground stake, which I think they, you know, they made it for turkey hunting. So you can stick that thing out in front of you, uh, with the turkey silhouette, uh, on there but i use it for whitetails and mealies too because it's when it's windy it's just if it's really windy it, you know you don't want that it's like having a sail on your bow no so you've got this you've got it mounted to your bow and you can use it in the scenario like you described where you'll flash it once mm-hmm. and then the deer will come in um uh will you i think maybe you mentioned this or maybe i heard you say it before but will you also use it as you know just like someone might use a big decoy when sitting in a tree stand you'll have it mm-hmm. and you'll see a deer way off in the distance and then you'll start rattling or calling and then once he looks in your direction then you flash it and then he sees the second part of the equation that makes him think okay yeah there's definitely something going on there um Absolutely. and do you keep it up the whole way until they come in or will you flash it and put it down and then prepare for the shot um it sounds like you can shoot with it mounted to your bow right Oh, absolutely. Yep. <clears throat> no, it's, uh, most of the time it's attached to the boat or in a ground stake. I'm not, I'm not really, uh, going back and forth with it up and down. Um, I will, I, I think just having that little bit of mo- movement, um, you know, it's, it's weird. You'd think that they would see the bow attached <laughs> to it, but they just look right through you and the bow and you can just, you know, I've had, I've rattled in bucks that I had no interest in killing. <clears throat> And they're 20, 30 yards from me, staring at the decoy. There's, I'm like kneeling in grass. It's like, you know, a foot top, foot high. They came in from behind me. So I'm completely, you know, there's nothing. I don't have anything to hide behind. And he's looking at that thing. And I just rocked the bow back and forth in that decoy. And he just, you could just see the hair pop up on the, on the back of his neck. And he just comes a little closer. It's like, uh, but this thing's only, you know, three foot tall and the, the, the decoy. And here I am you know 180 pound guy with a backpack and a bow and he they can't even they just for a buck in a rut i mean they they just look right through you fired up yeah and that's and that and 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 that's why i don't hunt tree stands anymore (laughs) (laughs) that's gotta be pretty intense it Um, is so much fun i i 
I'm tempted to jump right to how you handle the next moment, but I want to rewind just a little bit Mm -hmm. because I want to dive a little bit further into the stock. Um, Is there anything else that you do or that you're thinking about to, uh, to have a more successful stock into that range? Any tips for being quiet or, or things other, we talked about the wind, um, but are there any other little things that you do to help close the distance or to get that final, 10 yards closer for the shot or, or anything else that's on your mind when it comes to pulling that part off without the decoy involved? There's probably things that I'm just taking for granted, uh, that everybody knows that I, but it's, you know, one thing about the planes, there are little cactus and burrs everywhere. Make sure you have some good, uh, you know, pants with protective knee, protected knees, knee pads are not a bad idea. Um, the uh you're gonna get you're gonna get just filthy crawling and through this you know i, I mean if you've got a uh handheld the release or wrist a wrist release uh i would suggest tucking that thing inside your sleeves having make sure you have sleeves that you can tighten up around your uh, wrists because belly crawling across the dry dusty or or muddy wet uh field you are i mean the last thing you want is to get up there and you finally you got within range he stands up and you go to you know clip your release on your loop and it's just cake full of dust and rocks and it won't you won't function um the the terrain it's funny i bet i put my equipment for through as much abuse hunting that way as i do hunting the mountains um i bet it's it just crawling around in the, uh, that stuff is can tear tear you up but um yeah, I think that gear that would make make or break the stock. Um, comfortable shoes that <clears throat> you know. I stopped using maybe the traditional hunting boots a long time ago. Um, back when I was just hunting the Midwest, you know, I lived in a pair of lacrosse uh, rubber boots all year long, and I still love them. I still have them, but I, I don't get to use them as much anymore. I, you know, I'm I'm using you know whether I'm in the mountains or out in the plains i'm usually using a almost like a a light hiker or a light mountaineering boot nowadays and that's kind of my go-to you know it's nimble it's it's uh i can i can move through just about anything without uh having to worry about uh thorns or you know rocks brush whatever um and yet at the same time it's protecting my ankles and you know from rolling over uh in the mountains but also you don't need the you're not hunting the same spot every day so you don't need that that rubber boot uh, for scent protection like uh like you would with stand hunting but yeah so yeah um there's probably it's it's mostly just common sense on the stocking and uh, you know I'd make sure they don't see you hear you or smell you there you go that's no. okay let's let's touch a little bit more on one other thing you mentioned there, which was maybe tickling the tines together or calling mm-hmm. um, from everything I've heard and seen and some things you've mentioned too. It sounds like rattling and calling is particularly effective uh, in your mind in some of these mm-hmm. places. Would you agree with that? And then, yes. okay. Then secondly, talk to me a little bit more about how specifically you are using those two tools. Are you, I'm interested in your call sequence or your rattling sequence or when's the right time to do it. When's not the right time to do it. Um, walk me through the Tony Treach one-on-one on rattling and calling. Um, <coughs> <prayer> <coughs> <windows>. <coughs> well, 
in a perfect world, I don't have to. You know, a perfect world, my morning's going to start with me at a, at a high point uh, glassing, and I'm going to see him bed, and then I'm just going to walk up to him and shoot him. Uh, that's the perfect world. Uh, how it usually happens is maybe I do find him, but now he's bedded in a spot where, uh, you know, I, I can maybe sneak in, get close, but now he's got to deal with them. They could stand up and feed the other way. Maybe I want him to, I want to draw his attention over here. In that case, I'm going to use him more of just kind of a curiosity thing. And I'm going to make a, as light of a sound as I can. I don't even want him to really know for sure what he heard. I want him to think, you know, what did I just hear? What, what is that a, you know, is that two bucks sparring? Um, that's probably the more often the way I, I end up using them. Um, but let's say I don't find anything, you know, for the first hour or two, uh, glassing and it's, it gets to be nine o'clock in the morning. And now at this point, everything's bedded up. Uh, that's when I will make my, and have, and this only, this only really, I shouldn't say it only works in certain areas. I've only had luck with it in certain areas. Um, and it's, this is when I'll go to the, you know, the, the spots that might have a little bit thicker, thicker, brushier uh, areas where I can, I can get close to where they're bedding out in these, these open grassier areas or brushy, brushed in areas without them seeing me and set up, set up a decoy out in front of me a little ways. Uh, maybe I'll have another one right by my side. <clears throat> and that's when, I mean, I, I carry a, my, my set of random antlers are like, you know, it's a 160 class buck. It's, these are big solid antlers that I found a long time ago and they make great sound. I mean, I used to do a lot of shed on I've got a lot of sheds. It takes the right set of antlers to make the right sound. You and really I've, believe that, huh? Oh my God. I absolutely. I've always cannot, wondered. Yeah. I cannot stand all those fake plastic ones out there. I think I actually heard Steven talking about Renella on one of his podcasts about one of those little pack racks or whatever he yep. liked. And I was just shaking my head. And like, oh my God. <laughs> what are you doing? I just no, hate the bulk of carrying a big set of antlers. That's the thing that always deters me. Well, do you like the bulk of carrying the big antlers out? <laughs> okay, touche. Well, you, you might have to carry them in. You win. All right. <laughs> the, the sound they make is so different. And I mean, I could walk in my house, walk over, and I've got like 10 match sets, and there's two of them over there that are magical. And I mean, they just have a sound to them. And I am not bashful with them. I've just about broke my thumbs before. I'm too <laughs> proud to cut off the, the brow points, but uh -huh. I should cut off the brow points. But I, it's hard to cut the brow points off a nice set of sheds. But Agreed. um, but I just once I get set up in a spot like that, I I just let it rip. I mean, I don't I don't do it. I, it's, there's nothing gentle. There's nothing tickly about it. And I want to make as much noise. I want them to think that all hell is breaking loose. There's a hot doe or two and there's two bucks over here trying to kill each other for and man i've it's it's worked very very well um and even when it doesn't work well to the point where you're you know you find a buck that you want to you know like oh holy crap here comes a 180 inch deer you're still having fun because little bucks are running over top of you and sometimes they're running the opposite way because they're scared but um it's yeah, good good things happen when you're loud out there. Um, but but that's a totally different situation than you know sneaking up as close as you can to them and then being quiet. And that's yeah. that's pretty much the only ways I use them. You know, it's it's either a late morning setup or, or an early or a late afternoon, early evening setup where <clears throat> I don't have a play, I don't know where one's at, and it's just almost like a cold call setup um, where I'm loud and aggressive, or it's a last minute 
uh, you know, I've got a buck located. I'm, I'm in tight and I'm tickling him to get him up on his feet. Yeah. I got to believe that, um, I got to believe that the shot experience and whole process is different for those two scenarios. There's got to be the, there's the situation where you sneak up on one and maybe you don't need to use a call at all. You just slip right in and then you get a shot with that deer being unaware of your presence at all versus the shot where you rattle one in, it sees your decoy and it comes in right to kick your ass. Um, can you walk me through how you handle the shot, those moments of truth, the shot process itself, and anything unique to either one of those scenarios? I just black out and wake up and like, there's <laughs> dead animals laying around. <laughs> I, when I was younger, actually, that is what happened. But um, I think it's easier for me now with the decoy because they've made the last move and you know they've pinned their ears back or whatever and they're coming and I'm being forced into a situation. Uh, you know, he's coming, he's coming, he's, you know, he's okay. He's now he's at like point blank range. Cause a lot of times they'll just keep walking to you. I mean, eventually they're going to get to a point when they're 10 yards or 10 feet and they're going to like, there's some moment, hopefully they're going to realize you're not a buck. So you've got to shoot them before that <clears throat> you're, you're, uh, in this, you know, the, the, <clears throat> pardon me, the, uh, how would you call it? Ethics, ethics police might not like this, but you are forced with a lot of frontal and quartering two shots. Um, because of that with the decoy, because they're coming to kick your ass. They're not trying to move around you. They're coming right to you. Mm -hmm. Whereas with, you know, if, if I'm finding a bed and I'm sneaking up there and he's just laying there, <clears throat> I'm not being forced to make the shot. He's not moving in. I don't have, you know, the clock's not ticking and that way. It's then, then I have questions. Should I wait? Well, should I wait for him to stand? Do I have a window to his vitals? Um, is this you know what is the best situation then? And then I still have questions. Um, the young, younger me was just as soon as I could see his chest, I'm gonna zip an arrow through it. Uh, older me gets uh, asks more questions of myself now and gets my, gets me in trouble sometimes. Um, I had both situations this year. Uh, <clears throat> my first buck in Colorado this year, I was able to sneak up to him and he never knew I was there. Um, and I decided to wait. That could have went horribly wrong um, because eventually he did stand up and just, you know, spin around like a dog in his bed three times. And right before he laid back down, I shot him. But 15 minutes later, the wind took a dramatic 180 degree change because a big front came in, a big storm, and the thermals were going straight down the hill at that point. If he had waited until that happened, he would have winded me. So I got really lucky there. Whereas maybe I should have taken a shot earlier. I mean, I, I could see his chest, but he was, you know, obviously you have more of a room for, uh, you know, room for uh, error uh, yeah. when they stand up. And I just waited for that and it worked out. But, and then in Kansas, you know, that buck, he, I mean, he was, this year he was bedded with a doe and I could just see the tips of his antlers. I knew he was there, but I had no shot. And I was about 50 yards from him. I, Tickled the antlers together. Um, and actually, I don't even know if it was that necessarily because another buck came in too. Um, another little buck was coming in and they got up to kind of, I think, more, more or less deal with him than the noise I was making. But the second he saw that, that decoy, he just pinned his ears back and started walking to me. And then at that point, it's like, well, 
I've got an arrow on the string. This is what I wanted. He's coming and he's making them. He's making a decision for me. I'm going to be shooting here soon. So I think it's, it's easier for me when, uh, when they make the last move. Yeah. Either Any, way. Anything you've learned about taking that quartering two or frontal shot, um, as far as making that as, as lethal as possible, do you have a range like, Hey, they gotta be mm-hmm. within this range for me to take that shot or where exactly are you placing it? Um, any, any details on, on pulling that kind of thing off? Well, number one, uh, I shoot a, a heavy arrow. It's, uh, you know, it's, I think it's around five fifteen, five hundred fifteen grains, uh, 70 pound, you know, I've got a Hoyt turbo that's spitting them out there pretty fast. Uh, even for a heavy bow, so it's got a lot of thump to it. If you're shooting a 350 grain arrow and 55 pounds of draw, you know maybe an older bow that isn't so fast. This might not be the right play for you. Um, I mean, if I hit the scapula, I'm probably going through it. If I hit the where the where the, the leg bone thickens out below the scapula, I don't think anyone's getting through that. Um, I have hit that before. You know, it's been over a dozen years ago, but. Uh, that that's a thick bone down there however the ribs in front of the shoulder are not much different than the ribs behind the, sh- the shoulder um with that being said if you can a quartering two with you know it it's just like when they're walking you know if you if you with a quartering away when that leg goes forward you want to slip the arrow in front behind it well when they're walking to you and that leg goes back you want to slip that arrow in front of it um I've had great luck. I mean, I've literally had full uh, pass-throughs when I, you know, on a quarter and two shot that went in front of the front shoulder and exited out back through the rear ham and out zipped across the wheat field. I mean, lots of them. Uh, with whitetails, you know, I use a, a cut-on-contact rod and an iron wheel. You know, it's a fixed head. I don't use uh, mechanicals, and, and that's one of the reasons I don't want – you know, I've I've heard horror stories of mechanicals on a you know a, a hard quartering shot, you know, catch a rib and and uh, <clears throat> glance along, you know, or skim along the outside, and I, that's the last thing I want. So, you know, it's it's not like an elk. With an elk, you've got to be really careful. Those ribs are way thicker, you know, and you got to aim for that hole in the thoracic area, you know, but the base of their throat, the whitetail. Basically, I think of you know just putting the arrow to the center. Uh, point of their uh, chest from whatever angle I'm at and it's never never failed me but tell me tell tell me this I feel like this would be a good way to wrap this up because we're I've been hanging I've been holding here for a long time and I'm having fun with this one so <laughs> I'm, I'm, too. I'm selfishly getting as much as I can because um, I love hunting these kinds of places so I really want to I want to add this to my repertoire um, but is there is there any one example from all your years of this style of whitetail hunting that comes to mind to you as like the perfect, the perfect encapsulation of this whole way of hunting? Um, is there a story like that, a single hunt that just kind of wraps a bow on this whole thing that you could walk us through how you did this and that, that illustrates this whole thing nicely? Uh, do you want one that went uh, like almost perfect, uh, but took a whole, like, <laughs> how should i say that like uh, i could tell you about this last year i guess but in the end i got my deer but it was uh uh i had two different arrows hit a uh a fence um it w- sounds like a hell of a story <laughs> oh my god yeah it was so this buck i got just this past year um 
I was down there for probably a week and I didn't, um, I, I just wasn't seeing what I was, uh, you know, we used to see in, uh, in Kansas, you, you get the opportunity to draw, you know, an either, either species tag. So, and I did not draw this year. I only had the white tail only. So it kind of, you know, cuts you right there in, in half of what bucks you're looking for. And then I just, I mean, I'd seen bucks probably as high as 160, uh, but I just wasn't, wasn't willing to, to cut my tag on, on one nowadays, you know, you know, basically I had a, I had a guy tell me a long time ago, uh, if you don't, when you first see that buck, if it's not a no brainer, if it's not a holy crap, I got to That's, that's the one. If that, if that feeling isn't there, you got to pass. If you have to, if there's a second of doubt in your head, if you have to tell, if, if you have to argue with or negotiate with yourself, whether or not it's a shooter, it's not. Yeah. And I learned the hard way he was right. And I don't, you know, so nowadays I'm pretty, pretty picky and I just wasn't seeing what I was like, you know, wanting to see. And, the pheasant hunting was good, so I was killing some pheasants. Uh, but you know, I just wasn't seeing many bucks. And then I, uh, I want to say it was like the third day of pheasant season, maybe. Um, I just use that as a time reference. I don't really remember the actual date, but I was coming back from uh, just glass, and and I, it was already to the point where now I wasn't even. I was, I was leaving my last glassing point, and I was headed back to the ranch to get a night's rest, and a buck across the road in front of me. And it was the first really old mature buck I'd seen last year. And, uh, you know, I stopped the truck and jumped out with the, the binoculars and he, you know, was a couple hundred yards off the side of the road with some does. And I got to watch him a little bit. Um, the next morning I was on a different high spot, you know, maybe about a mile from there, uh, where I could cover that whole area and for a lot of it. And, just luckily he was the very first deer i saw and uh he had a doe he had a couple of our bucks that were shadowing him and he kept running them off he had broken off his brow one of his brow points already which they're both really big brow points they're like six seven inches um so he'd done that overnight and uh i just waited him out he he probably took man it, it took longer than 30 or nine o'clock before he finally bedded. But in, in that time, you know, he'd went, you know, almost to the middle of the, the section. So, you know, a half mile from each County road and over the edge where I couldn't see him. So that was the one I was telling you earlier. I had to drive all the way around, find another high point over there. And luckily I picked him up again before he, he laid down. And, uh, I mean the whole, the whole section I have permission to hunt on, um, from three different landowners. Uh, so I didn't have to worry about the fences, as far as uh, you know, property lines go, I just had to worry about the fences. The fact that he was betting a long one, um, it was super easy. I mean, there was no stock. I just grabbed my bow and the decoy and walked because he was on the other side of a little knoll. And once I got, I, I wasn't even going to be within sight of him until I was like forty or fifty yards. So I basically just got to where I could see his antler tips, knelt down on some cut milo. Um, you know, there's a lot of times in those areas, they'll, uh, the Milo will be like a terraced off on the hills where they have like a little flat spot, then it drops down. A flat spot and it drops down. I think it just makes it easier for them to, to harvest it and maybe helps with uh, uh, erosion. But it makes for great little spots to kneel behind um, and cover maybe your lower half when you're showing a decoy. And there was a little buck that kept coming up. 
And I tried tickling the antlers to him uh, to get him to stand up. And I could see his ears twitch, and he'd turn his head a little bit, but he wouldn't stand up. So I I think in the end it was the another buck that got him and his doe up on his feet. And she saw me and walked right over to me, and she saw me first. I mean, she was probably 20 yards from me. But so when he saw me, the decoy, now he sees, not only has his doe walked away from him a little bit while he was, you know, preoccupied with this little buck, there's another little buck over there in the cut Milo, which is me, and his doe was walking over towards it. She's just curious what I am because she's, they're, obviously the does are a little more, they don't have testosterone roll them at that time of the year, so they're a little more curious as to what you are. And white-tailed does are actually, I usually don't like them to get that close because a lot of times they will blow out and screw up the whole thing, but she didn't. <clears throat> he saw me and just pinned his ears back and just started, you know, doing that moose walk where they just kind of tip their head left and right and back and he's just coming and it's to the point where I, mean, I drew my bow back and i'm thinking he's gonna stop he's at 30 he's at, okay that i know that fence post is 30 and he just keeps coming i'm like i gotta let down so now i gotta shift a little bit because you know the stalks are tall enough i can't really swing my my bow through i've kind of got to go up and around and the doe's looking at me like uh, I don't, this, this buck doesn't look right. You know? <laughs> but the, but the, I swear to God, those older bucks, once they get it in their head that they're going to sh- scare you off and run you off, they, I, they just, they get the googly eye thing and they roll their eyes back, their ears are pinned back and they're just, they're coming. And you, well, there's a bucks that I was, I've kind of just messed around with in the past. Like I, I had no intention of shooting up and yell at them to get them to leave. Wow. Um, but this guy's coming and he's coming and he finally gets to the point where, you know, he's got to, he's either got to jump the fence to me or now he's going to be going further away. And, and he just stops. He's just standing there. He's not moving his head. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to shoot him right through the, the fence. I mean, it's barbed wire fence. There's four strands of it. I mean, there's only two of them that are in play and it's really, t- I mean, this is a, this is the sh- closest shot I've had in a long time. What are the odds of it hitting it? <laughs> And it hits it, and it, the arrow instantly goes down and back. And like, oh no! And you could you could see by the you know the way well, you could hear it too. The the it wasn't the standard like you know thump sound. It was more of a a smack because it, you know the the arrow was also coming at him kind of sideways. You know it, it didn't it wasn't good. And so I throw an arrow on. He you know he had instantly you know made a jump. So now he's out five yards further, which, you know, no change in pin. And what are the odds of it hitting the fence again? Uh, wow. Apparently pretty good because it hit again and it went right between his feet. Like, you got to be kidding me. And this time, you know, he walks a little further. Um, and by this time, you know, and I'll admit, I'm, I'm, I'm frazzled. I'm like, I'm like, I cannot believe, what are the odds of this happening? I've put all this work in this now and, and now it's I'm shooting like a, you know, jackass. I, you know, and you feel bad, right? Because you know it's supposed to be a quick, you know, clean kill. And and I, so, so long story short, I am out of arrows very quickly here, and I've got two arrows in them. And you know, this is one of those days that ends well, but. um there was moments in it where I, yeah, it, like this, yeah. There's a moment when I'm like, I need more arrows. I absolutely this. I, I did everything right up until when I didn't. Oh, and, so, and now, 
you did hit yeah. him. It hit the oh, yeah. bar and then hit him. Okay, for some reason I thought it ricocheted off and you missed both. But okay, nope. so you, you hit him. The He's first, still got an arrow. I see. The first arrow hit him and, and it was a lethal shot. Like it's low. It's maybe diaphragm, maybe liver, but maybe on the other side of the diaphragm. I'd later find out it was it was behind it. Um, but he's just so they, hopped up on kicking your butt. Oh yeah. He doesn't even care that he just got hit. No, no, wow. did not care. Second arrow hit the hit the wire went went uh, low between his legs. He didn't even acknowledge it. Um, he moved out a little further. I want to say the third arrow uh, connected, um, but he was walking away at that point and. It wasn't, you know, it was basically replay the first shot, um, and then he laid down. And I tried to sneak in and get another one in him, and I, I couldn't get any closer than that fence because climbing a fence, he would have picked me off. And I, you know, I don't, I was, I didn't want him. He's still at that point. I, I didn't think he had any clue what I was. I mean, he's, yeah, I could still see him. So, um, and I, and I was last two shots. I just caught, uh, you know, he's laying down in brush, and I tried to squeeze him through there, and he just, it didn't, it didn't connect. And eventually, I'm sitting there along that fence line now. He's moved to oatmeal. We basically moved about 50 yards forward. His nose laid back down. He's laid back down. He's not doing good. I'm like just expecting him, you know, his head will go down and I'm thinking he's going to die. And that other buck comes back, literally scoops up that doe, hops the fence with her, and they take off. And that buck watches him. And I'm just like thinking, just stay there, buddy. It's time, you know, just stay there. He got up and he walked over to that fence and <clears throat> I didn't think he was going to be able to do it. And he kind of like high sided himself for a bit. You know, he tried to jump it and he, then he bloop, slipped over and he made it and he started walking after him. Jeez. And I, yeah, I know. So I ran back to the truck as fast as I could, got more, you know, loaded the bow with arrows, drove her up. Cause now I got to drive back around the other side of the block again, where I have view of that side where I originally spot him in the morning, got over there. They're all three laying down in the field, and um, you know, basically, he never left that field. Um, but it involved me waiting, waiting, uh, probably not as long as I should have, because if I had just never moved in on him to get another arrow on him, he would have just died right there after a couple hours. But I tried to slide in and end it sooner, and uh, I actually had the decoy on the bow. That was you know, one of those times when I'm crossing that little opening area. Just hoping if he does turn over here and see uh, that, because there's nothing really in between us, um, that he will uh, see the decoy. And I uh, was able to get another arrow in him again, but the wind caught that decoy and it wasn't a good shot. And <laughs> it was, uh, it, I, I've had this conversation where it was a, one of the worst and best days I've had in a long time because, you know, I, in the end I got the buck I wanted, but there was, there were tears from it and uh, you know, I felt like shit because I, you know, what started off as a, a simple mistake hitting a, a barbed wire moved on to me rushing things, not, uh, not taking my time and just letting them rest and stiffen up and die, pushing it, um, you know, not thinking, you know, ahead of time about what the wind's going to do with, with this decoy on there. Just, you know, I didn't, uh, a time came when I, my ju- my good judgment kind of on how I should move along with it kind of went out the window. And I was, I just had one thing in mind and that was get him dead as soon as possible. And in the end it worked out, but, um, but yeah, it's, that, that might not be the, the type of story you were thinking about to end wrap it up with, but that was the, uh, 
the one that's most pressing on my mind because of uh, maybe for not the reasons of, of grandeur, but reasons of it, it taught me a lesson. So yeah, no, I think that's that's an important. I think that kind of story makes me think of a few things. Number one, it it reminds us all that you can do everything right, and still, every once in a while, those nightmare scenarios will happen because um, we are chasing a wild animal and just stuff happens. Um, so you better be prepared for it as best as possible. And, and like, like you did, even though it didn't turn out as didn't turn out the way you wanted to, you, you, know, you tried to end it as quickly as possible. You tried to do the, the most ethical possible next thing. Um, and then also just for me, when you hear those kinds of stories, you just can't help but have this admiration for an animal that can just keep on living and it's just unbelievable the the toughness and the will to live that these critters have i mean they are survival machines um yeah. that's for sure so i uh i don't know man i'm fired up i am just yeah. after hearing this i just i'm ready to get out there is what i'm ready to do this is uh this is fun stuff yeah tag season is uh upon us i'm uh, before we started the podcast, I was going through my, uh, my Utah app that's going in this afternoon and <clears throat> one by one, the state's applications will all be in. And then, uh, before you know, it, it'll be scouting time. And then right back into it all. The, the never ending yep. cycle continues. Hopefully. Yes. Is there, is there any place that if folks, if folks listen to this and were really interested, intrigued and wanted to either see some of your writing or follow along with your hunts or anything, is there anywhere that you would tell people to go for them to connect with you or to, to learn more? Uh, my Instagram is probably the, the best place uh, to follow along. Uh, and that's just Tony Treach, or I guess there's an underscore between the names at Instagram. Um, I don't really, I mean, I write for Rod Slide uh, <clears throat> and I'm on their staff, but I don't, I'm not exclusive. So my articles pop up in different magazines. Cool. Awesome. Well, Tony, I, I really enjoyed this one. This is something that's kind of near and dear to my heart, these kinds of areas. So I'm I'm making a plan to try to add this kind of hunting to to my repertoire. And it was awesome to be able to pick your brain about it. So thanks for taking so much time to do that. <clears throat> well, thank you, Mark. It was a pleasure being on. <laughs> and and get, get some water, man. You're struggling. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, no, I... Uh, got a frog right there at the last second. <clears throat> it happens. I've I've had it happen a time or two myself. So yeah, it's getting over a cold, so it's been tough. That's no fun. Well, thank you, yeah. Tony, again, and uh, let's stay in touch. Sounds good. Thanks, Mark. And that's a wrap, my friends. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for being a part of one hell of a great community. Um, the Wired Hunt listeners, all of you guys out there that are avid hunters and new hunters and mentors and conservationists and just lovers of wildlife and wild places and the folks that walk the walk just don't talk the talk. Um, man, I think you guys are awesome. I'm proud to be chatting with you weekly. I'm proud uh, to call you guys my friends, colleagues, community. And um, I think I'm going to stop talking now and just let you get outside. Hopefully you're shed hunting, picking up trash, scouting, having a good time. Hopefully we'll have some sunshine here soon. So until next time, thank you and stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam 
can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.